Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. On today's episode, we explore the world of alternative providers and the cornucopia of education credentials they offer a public that is, frankly, starting to wonder whether it's worth their money and time to pursue a traditional four-year degree. In contrast, short-form boot camps, certificate programs, and micro-credentials that promise relevant job skills training sound pretty enticing. Our guests discuss the extent to which this trend represents a real threat to higher ed and whether the right move is for colleges and universities to adapt and compete or even partner with companies like Coursera and Guild to help build out their online offerings. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Jackson Nell, and I'm an Associate Director at our Strategic Advisory Services, where we serve on our financial sustainability and blueprint for growth research teams. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Sasha Thackerberry, Vice President of Online and Continuing Education at Louisiana State University, or LSU. Sasha is a widely recognized leader in the online learning space with a variety of publications and conference presentations to her name, and has been leading LSU's innovative and expanding online platform since 2018. Sasha, welcome to Office Hours. It's great to have you here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited for our conversation. I know. I, I've been so excited all over the weekend. I was like, I'm talking to Sasha on Monday. I can't wait to, for this conversation to get her thoughts on this <laughs> awesome. very exciting space. Fellow, and, fellow alternative credential geek. There you go. Yes. This certainly is a geek term for, for both of us here. So again, looking forward to that. And the space that we're talking about, it is very newsy to say the least, and it's often poorly understood and very confusing. And that is the, the kind of quagmire myriad world of alternative providers and credentials. And I think, you know, there's a lot of forces percolating this uh, topic to the forefront of our industry, but many that date back to a decade plus, right? And it's really centered around the conversation among the industry around uh, faster and cheaper alternatives uh, and education pathways uh, to some of our traditional offerings and and traditional institutions even. Um, So these so-called alternative providers are often companies, for-profit companies, uh, which offer types of education, often credentials, but sometimes various different flavors of that, everything from degrees to to micro-credentials, to say the least, in partnership with traditional institutions or increasingly independently of them. Um, So when we're using this term alternative providers, to give you some illustration of some of the the actual beings or things out there, we're talking about some of the the big tech companies moving into the space, IBM and Grow with Google, for example, to some of the kind of in-between innovative models like Udacity or Udemy, um, and then some of the uh, partnerships, the, the, the groups that work with traditional institutions in kind of the OPM, OPX evolution space, uh, such as Coursera and edX. Um, and so these kind of myriad providers are attracting significant industry attention, as well as investor funding, uh, consolidating more frequently through M&A and kind of maturing their business models and making big bets on kind of the future of their uh, products and uh, making bids to seize and expand their market share. So lots going on here for sure, Sasha, but let's start with a little bit more on that why now. What is driving the interest in alternative providers in our industry, and what does it tell us about the state of online education and and higher education more broadly? So this is a a why now that's been sort of 10 years in the making. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of this started even before we saw the MOOC or MOOC-like platforms appear. I think there's been an acceleration in it, an acceleration of interest because of COVID and some of the professional development that 
you know, companies used to have in person or bring in with trainers, that model needing to change. Uh, but in general, I think it's the relevance of the skills and expertise that businesses need right now. And the fact that the pace of those skills developing and changing it just keeps increasing, right? And and curriculum relevance and transformation happens much, much slower at traditional institutions, even fully online institutions. And I think that's a lot of what it's speaking towards. Um, and yet, and yet you see these platforms really trading on the brands and the um, familiarity of those brands in the marketplace to sort of sell you know, sell their interest or get interest. So it's it's a little bit of a, a, a fascinating situation wherein, yes, the credentials are getting smaller. They're getting more workforce relevant. They're adapting themselves faster than I think most institutions of higher education ever could. And yet <laughs> they are using the brands uh, to leverage what they're doing in a lot of ways, which is probably really good for them. I'm not so sure good for colleges and universities. Yeah, definitely want to talk about that in, in further detail in just a second. But you're, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of forces really driving this to the forefront. And I think what's really different than maybe 10 years ago is, is the creation of these new intermediaries, right? The, the big go-to-market providers that exist and, and kind of the iteration that's now uh, occurred in online learning that's been slowly happening, but now certainly accelerated. And a big variable that I think a lot of folks run in, and one that you mentioned is, is the COVID accelerant, right? You know, in, in the last year, we saw a tremendous uptick in utilization on, on a lot of these platforms. If you look at the Google Trends data, there's this big spike uh, in people searching for things like Coursera and edX in, in, during lockdown of last spring. And I think it's often tempting for us to write off some of kind of this interest as, you know, COVID-induced surge or blip. But I'm curious to get your thoughts here about how much of the interest recently is attributable to COVID and how lasting do you actually think the, the employer and learner interest is in faster and uh, uh, cheaper alternatives, uh, regardless of COVID? Oh, yeah. For So for the second part of that, uh, I think employers are always interested in faster mm -hmm. and cheaper. I think part of it is a, a question of how reductive can you get or how small can you get and still have sort of lasting transformation in terms of skills and mm -hmm. expertise that you need out of your employees. Um, I don't think much of it is, oh, well, let me, let me sort of rephrase that. I think some of the uh, acceleration recently in usage was due to people not being able to go outside and do other fun things. So, you know, if you're bored and sitting at home, you may as well learn something right, right. useful. So, uh, but, but I think we're going to see a lot about if people found value in that, if they were interested in learning, they're probably going to continue, you know, it might, it might, the acceleration might slow down a little bit, but I think it will still keep accelerating. And those intermediaries, their um, entire sort of motivation is to get more people to take mm -hmm. these smaller credentials because their game is volume, right? So sort yep. of like the mega universities game is volume, but these intermediaries, like their whole game is volume. And so they're trying to get as many people doing this as possible. So they want to see the value add for businesses. 
Absolutely. And I think that there's a desire by the Coursera's, the edX, these big players to convert that kind of sugar rush from COVID and their, their utilization into kind of a lasting presence um, and build out that name recognition and kind of cement their market share. And I think that that's something we can speculate is, is starting to happen, but also I think will have trickle effects down the, the adult learner space in particular as, as folks think about who are the preferred partners of choice when looking at an education offering. What does the user experience look like? What are some of those kind of things that we've become familiar with in a digital native digital first world that kind of continue on in, as we evolve or hopefully move beyond some of that kind of immediate pandemic surge. 100%. And one of the things that those MOOC platforms have done um, or MOOC-like platforms have done that uh, traditional higher education has not been successful in is in terms of that user experience. Like the platforms, they've, they've dedicated a lot of time to the platforms. I think in some cases more so than the actual learning experience design, but they've really come a long way in terms of that. But, you know, folks who are busy, they want to be able to download their quick little videos and, you know, watch them on the plane or on the bus or in their living room and, you know, learn something new that they can apply right away, which has always been historically the post-traditional online degree marketplace, right? So. That's, I mean, it's it's competition. I don't think people realize that. Yeah, and so much of it is consumer driven. I mean, I just think about you know how you can watch courses on your Coursera mobile app. You know, and oh, yeah. the vast majority of their learners are actually engaging on the app, which is not how the vast majority of our learners at a lot of our institutions are engaging with our platforms. <laughs> and there's also, you know, I think of you know the outliers and the master classes of the world. You know, it's almost edutainment. You know, there's so much uh, good stuff on it that you have these celebrities. Uh, professors or you have high quality content videos that it's almost enjoyable and it's kind of like nerds like ourselves Sasha like sometimes I find myself just wanting to watch a good video and learn something from it even if I don't get the credential Absolutely. Uh, out of it. So definitely a lot to unpack there. And I would be remiss if we didn't actually talk about micro-credentialing. I know that's kind of a, a thing that fits into the, the broader umbrella, but certainly is a topic that we could spend, you know, uh, not only a whole podcast, but a whole MOOC lawn uh, session about, right? Um, but curious to think about one of the challenges that has occurred in micro-credentialing is just how fragmented it's been. There's kind right. of various uh, definitions of standards. A lot of institutions are really experimenting and throwing terms around here, but nothing really has taken off at least, you know, at a consistent level. Level. But one thing the alternative providers have been starting to do is really commodifying the language around here in some of the offerings. I think of right. uh, edX's MicroMasters, for example, or Coursera Specializations mm-hmm. as two examples. Do you think this is helping the micro-credential market take off, or is it in some ways giving the power to the, the intermediaries at the expense of the institutions to really set the terms of what the, the micro-credential market looks like? Uh so that's really interesting. I think that when when folks still look for these, like when um, you're direct to sort of consumer market, the thing that still has the most uh, sort of value to it or that's the most searchable is still certificate, right? Yep. So it's, it's seen as being workforce uh, ready or workforce applicable. Uh, people aren't really searching for nano degrees as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet people are uh, making a, making bets in what's going to ring true in that space, right? So like yeah. MicroMasters, I love that. I love the what, it's, what it communicates right there. However, to traditional institutions, that's far too reductive and yeah. it leads into accreditation. Okay, well, can we call that a master's if it's not a master's degree, right? right? Um, and then also what institutions will ingest shorter form credentials that don't come from them? 
right? So I know MIT had this issue with anyone who comes and completes our, um, I forget what it was, MicroMasters or something, yep. can get into, you know, and passes these assessments, can get into our program. Well, there's far too much demand and none of space at MIT. So some other institutions have started accepting that as credit. Surely someone who is um, able to be admitted at MIT can be admitted at a lot of other institutions. Right. And yet, then you're taking the revenue from your master's degree down to what, 50% of what it yep. was going to be. And transfer credit usually isn't a thing at the master's level. So I think there's a lot of question marks there. I know that um, we actually at LSU, we trademarked the term micro creds. Yes. Uh, so if anyone's interested in that, you can't have it. We already <laughs> trademarked it, but um, like the MicroMasters was trademarked as an image. Now they may have been updated, but I don't think it was trademarked as a term. And I actually think there may be value in that because if you're them, you want other people to recognize MicroMasters as a thing or nano degrees as a thing or specializations as a thing, right? People are really trying to drum up interest because people search for things like degrees or certificates. They're not so much searching for intermediary specific, you know, a specifically named um, thing. And there's so much variation in this space. And that's where I think us on the higher education side get um, really lost in the weeds. We spend mm -hmm. a lot of time trying to figure out what is the size of this credential? What is its relationship to, you know, contact hours if we're going to accept it for credit at some future point? Well, that sort of defeats the purpose, right, of being skills and knowledge driven. So, you know, I think there's just so many things that are we're approaching from diametrically different lenses. Higher education institutions are approaching them from the point of reference of what will this potentially diminish or put at risk as right. part of who we are or what our core value proposition is. Whereas on the other side, they're really approaching it from an opportunity perspective, a market-driven perspective, because it's new for them, right? It's this new market that they're getting into and gobbling up large parts of and unfortunately most higher ed institutions i don't think are yet there in realizing that the competition of the future is not just other higher education institutions right. yeah no and excellent answer on just the the narrative of, of what kind of the credentialing uh, archetypes look like and just how confusing it really is and you know i think too to your point about the controlling of the terminology you know that the trademarking of a lot of these terms too has been a centralizing force but to your point it's it's one that really is built into the business models of the intermediaries more so than the institutions themselves and and that yeah. has complications and i think uh goes back to the point about accessibility um and also getting folks to be bought in you know it's one thing to convince you know employers and consumers it's another thing to convince uh tenure track faculty of what this is and, and the terminology it around it and accreditors and i think uh, lots of, of jargon, to say the least. One term that I've used that I don't know if everyone is familiar with is, is the term MOOC, uh, Massive o Open Online Courses, for reference. Uh, that was kind of the buzz phrase that existed back in 2011-12. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of died out in Peter, but has evolved into kind of these platforms that we see today uh, in the direct-to-consumer environment. So just wanted to clarify that for folks on the line, what we're uh, talking yes. about. Yes, and uh, I, I use the term MOOC-esque a lot 
because yes. these things are not, uh, they're usually freemium now, right? So you can, yep. you can try some sort of version for free, but they're not truly meant to be free. They still are massive and they're still not uh, facilitated in the way that a traditional course would be sort of more hands-on facilitated sort of quote unquote taught. Absolutely. And, and, you know, they also then fit into kind of these MOOC pace degrees that you see, mm -hmm. you know, the IMBA even, and some of the kind of the more uh, disruptive traditional online degrees, we could say the least there. So that's, that's a conversation for another day potentially, but a lot of activity there <laughs> to say the least. But one thing I do want to go back to Sasha is something that you raised is kind of the blurring of lines between traditional providers and these alternative providers. And I think that this really is a game that's you see among the elites of, of our industry. So, you know, you have big, schools like MIT, Harvard, uh, the University of Michigan, et cetera, are making big bets and partnering here and, and essentially licensing parts of their brand out and, and their offerings right. into the space. You also see them building kind of multiple internal business models, so to speak, that are often divergent with other kind of core parts of their business model, right? And living with a form of what I call, you know, cognitive dissonance, but they are <laughs> essentially secure enough to do this, right? And, and able to kind of capture on the marketplace. But my question for you here is, is this setting itself up to be a winner takes all market where these big players with the big brands run with the partners and then push out everyone else? Or do you think that there is still space for kind of a myriad or a, a lot of different players to exist here uh, more so than just the big names? Yeah, so I, I think there is a huge danger in it being a winner take all or rather winners, like the top winners mm -hmm. take all, right? Of these sort of platforms, they're they're bleeding also into sort of the OPM space, right? Yeah. So in some ways they're they're offering sort of upsells on marketing and and all of those pieces. I, I actually am not so sure what the ROI on this is ultimately for most institutions. Like for, for right. some of the folks who were like, you know, MITx at the very beginning or Harvard X, you know, they're not they're not paying into those platforms the way a different institution would need mm -hmm. to be. So, and they also, you know, they could never charge tuition again and they'd still be fine. Right. I think for most state institutions, it's a little bit different. If you look at the majority of their brands, they're sort of more high value state institutions, some of them private institutions, but those are also the same institutions that are generally speaking, not great at tracking all of their expenses and figuring out what an ROI actually is. Yep. Uh, because there, you know, if you if you divorce the faculty expense of creating and maintaining the course, along with the administrative expenses of the coordination, creation, and maintenance of the course, along with the expenses of instructional design, if you're taking off all of these sort of direct and indirect expenses and not tracking them, I mean, I think the ROI may be very close to zero for some of these institutions. And in fact, there might be a lost opportunity cost because you're not getting those millions of leads are going to edX or they're going yep. to Coursera. Like University of Michigan ain't getting, uh, you know, lead lists that are millions of leads that they can personally market to. But that's also part of the value of your edX's and Coursera's of the world is that they're marketplaces. You know, most of us don't want all of our degrees and credentials to have exactly the same name on it, right? Yep. That's why they generally say don't go to the same institution for your undergrad, your master's, your PhD, and everything mm -hmm. in between, right? You want some variety. And that is an advantage that, you know, um, 
edX and Coursera have. You can have something that refers to Google Analytics and something that refers to Amazon Cloud and you know something related to University of Michigan or somebody mm -hmm. else, right? It gives you a variety, but a single provider, which I think it is just ease of use, right? Right. Um, and you see this too in like the the, the common app right? Under, uh, undergrad students apply to essentially sort of a marketplace of universities and colleges, but that's very different, like multi-year, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. commitment, um, and a very different audience. But th I think that's one of the core values of them. And, and for sure, for sure, like the guild educations of the world are also getting into the content business. And yep. the edX's and Coursera's of the world are also trying to get into the, um, you know, benefit space or paying for education through benefits. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch which of them sort of survive this Game of Thrones. Yeah, I think there's there's certainly a wave of consolidation that probably will come forward too. And, and you talked about so much, Sasha, and I think one thing that stands out to me is this increasing marketplacing phenomenon that we're starting to see, right? If you mm -hmm. go into FutureLearn, edX, Coursera, Udacity, even, it's almost like logging onto an app store of courses, right? And, and providers, right? And, and that is a commodifying force that you lose a lot of agency in. And only, you know, the biggest brands arguably can compete at that to some degree, right? You know, if you Absolutely. have a thousand and institutions offering the same course, you know, in IT instruction, it reminds me of those old flashlight apps that used to exist on the iPhone that you could get. There were a thousand of them. And then, right. you know, a Apple launched the, uh, the iPhone button or the flashlight button and they went away, right? That seems to be some of the dynamics that you see in these places. And it's a very different competitive game than I think a lot of us are used to in the, the undergraduate space, but even in the adult and grad. Absolutely. And one thing, you know, you touched on too is, is the monetization opportunity here. And I think, you know, one of the challenges, I think, for a lot of our large public flagships, for example, is is, is balancing their public and access mission here mm -hmm. with the reality that a lot of this is occurring in kind of this for-profit intermediary space. Right. And at the same time, a financially sustainable model is really hard to create here, right? I, I would wager that very few schools are, are, are making significant ROI when they cover all of their direct and indirect costs. And a lot of this is essentially just really good strategic marketing, right? You're, you're getting top of funnel lead gen, building relationships with students to kind of upsell, cross-sell them into your traditional degree. Right, offerings. right, absolutely. Coursera edX's business model in a nutshell right now. I, I'm curious, what do you think about the monetization opportunity more, more generally speaking? What is really the ROI of, of launching and competing in this space? Um, and how much of this is that kind of strategic marketing frame of the value here versus a true standalone business model? Uh, yeah, so I think, I think that for your edX's, your Coursera's, all those, those folks, it is, um, they're, they're essentially sort of reselling product that they get dirt cheap, right? If yep. you're thinking of those <laughs> educational experiences as product, they're getting them like you're paying retail for them, but they are getting them, um, incredibly inexpensively from the colleges and institutions. And I would argue a lot of times that it's not in the institution's best interest. They should protect their brand and or get more out of it, right? Right. Um, I think they should ask for more. And frankly, there's no, if, if, if you know, the Coursera's of the world don't have product that has brand names on it, then they can't sell it, right? So I think the universities and colleges have more, more leverage than they think they have. Um, I think, there's a lot of opportunity for public institutions to be a lot better in this space. Mm. Uh, there's 
a whole bunch of challenges, obviously, but to me, the the mission shouldn't be one of them. Like as a at LSU, we're a land grant, a sea grant, and a space grant institution. Right. Um, we also have multiple institutions in the LSU system, and they all have slightly different missions. They're good at slightly different things. And so we can almost create our own sort of marketplace where there's a path for every student at LSU, right? But not every institution has that strength of brand. So I think people really have to decide what is their what is going to be their area of expertise, but they've got to move faster. Yeah. I mean, you're you're wondering why these publics are buying for profits. It's because they can't move fast enough. You know, nobody went out looking for a for profit institution because they thought that would be best for them in terms of their relationships with faculty at their university. Yeah. They do it out of desperation, or I don't want to say desperation, maybe strategic um, concern. Let's call it strategic concern. Yes. And they're going to get left behind. And a lot of these institutions are, I think the publics, the big brand publics are generally speaking the worst at this because they've been insulated from some of those enrollment concerns. I think there are some sleeper cells that we're going to see in some of our regional institutions mm -hmm. that are growing and nobody's really paying a lot of attention to them, but we're terrible at, at tracking how much something costs. That is yeah. one of the things that we did very differently at LSU is we capture how much it costs to do everything, like down mm -hmm. to how many we, we do billable hours, right? So that we can figure out, is of course costing you more over time or is it you know highly maintainable? So those are right. some of the things that if we approach them differently, but as I said before, usually the revenue that comes in from these online programs is divorced from the expenses and you get like as a continuing ed unit or as a fully online unit, you get a separate stream of funding and it's not related in any way. So how much, I mean, how do you know when you get to ROI? Yeah, no, that's such a great point. And then you add in the complexities of, you know, RCM budget modeling, and then you add uh -huh. in, you know, OPMs and profit sharing or fee for service structures, you know, it really gets complicated to get a sense of how do you manage this enterprise, let alone do it yep. sustainably from a financial standpoint. And I think a lot of folks may actually be losing money and they don't necessarily realize it, which is also a concern too, right? Uh, here. Sure. <laughs> and I think to your point about publics, like I think there is certainly an opportunity for the flagships to differentiate themselves, build out kind of what their core value is, is you have such a strong brand within your home markets and regions that that's something that really can't be replicated in, in the services that you provide, the alumni networks, the, the vast yeah. kind of infrastructure that exists. Like we have to figure out a way as an industry to sell that or at least communicate that effectively to students, but certainly seems to be one that I think a lot of schools are experimenting with and, and doing more here as well. Yeah, I don't think anyone's like thrilled to be, they, they don't put like that they're in the active Coursera alumni because there's no like football related get togethers <laughs> or, you know, people aren't, it, it's more the brand of the institution, which again, is something that they're trading on. Right. And you can collect a lot of brands, right? Like I could go oh, yeah. on a platform and get, you know, a micro-credential from Yale and Harvard and then put it all in this portfolio. But but what is the value of that, I think, is still uh -huh. a big question. And, and if you're going for a higher education credential and you want a high-touch, high-ROI experience, it still seems a lot of those traditional pathways are going to be more lucrative in the long run for us, just given the saturation and over-commodification, potentially parts of the market. Um you know, we talked a lot about kind of 
the what we should be worried about. And you know, there's a lot of scary things I think in this space. Uh, you know, I I always ask folks who's their like up at night competitor, uh, and they always you know will say a traditional institution. But increasingly, I hear folks like say Google, IBM, you know, some of those even bigger companies. But I, I'm curious, how worried are you more generally about losing market share to some alternative providers here, um, or do you think there's a world where the market is actually expanding and that they're finding new opportunities that maybe we have underserved historically and therefore it's not us losing market share it's just an opportunity cost for us uh i i think a little bit both and uh but okay. let me explain that so for the first um piece i do worry that folks are gonna get smarter and i kind of want them to because it's going to push the rest of us right like we need to have a higher level of concern uh they're going to figure out that there are short form credentials specifically ones that lead to certifications or some other third party again other than a higher ed institution sort of verifying their skills and knowledge and some of those you can make a very good living at you know mm -hmm. one of the one of the higher cost um ish sort of explanations of this is, uh, or examples of this rather is with uh, like the, the boot camps, right? So yeah. it's, it's a lot of money, quote unquote, a lot of money. I mean, I don't know that these people have, have thought a lot about the cost of a degree yeah. um, because that's a lot of money too. And you can never declare bankruptcy and get out of those loans. No. Um, but the like the ROI on some of these boot camps is remarkable. There's even mm -hmm. programs at the community college level that have really strong ROI. And we're going to see people increasingly figure that out and take advantage of it, which is good for them. What I want to make sure we can do is those highly qualified, motivated people, I want them to come back and finish their degree so that they can get promoted. So in a weird way, it could expand our opportunity if we move fast enough, if we get it, we get it going. So I also think though that um, the the total size of the market is gonna continue to grow because of what technology is doing to work writ large. Anyone who thinks that they're not going to have to get another credential or take another form of learning experience at some point in their lives is kidding themselves now if they wanna have a family sustaining wage and true career opportunities because we just need to learn so much faster. I mean, I feel like I'm constantly learning. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just that market is going to continue to grow just because of our world, right? How fast right. our world is moving, what we need more of, less of. Um, but we have to we have to keep uh, our our value proposition of those networks, those relationships, right? Um, we have to keep that going. Otherwise, that I, I would be much more concerned that even in this expanding marketplace, we're going to have less and less of them. In terms of specific like competition, like brands that keep me up at night, um, I would say some of the mega universities do because they're also realizing these sort of threats from those, yeah. uh, that, right? And and some of it's if you can't beat them, join them, right? So we've seen some also high profile uh, partnerships in that mega university space. But I will also say that we still have, as a culture, um, a relationship between exclusivity and value, right? So I also think that those folks have a danger of if you're always, 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 always growing, what becomes the value of that credential when mm -hmm. it's, quote unquote, more common? So right. I think that that's a balance that people really have to think of. I mean, is the is the 
is the goal perpetual un, unfettered growth? Why? Yeah. No, that, that's very, very helpful context for us, Sasha. And I think you're absolutely right that the status quo is changing regardless of whether we want it to or not and whether or not yeah. the market is shrinking or you know we're losing market share or it's expanding. There, there's just a lot of not staying the same anymore. Um, and I think we all as institutions have to at least recognize what this means more broadly for us. For some of us, it may mean doing very little or nothing, but for a lot of us in the uh, adult and, and grad space, I think there's going to be new imperatives and new kind of competitive intelligence frames that we need to run at and consider mm -hmm. more uh, from a risk and opportunity standpoint. But knowing that we're almost that time here, I would love to get your thoughts on, on what do we do about this, right? And I know you're doing a lot at this, uh, thinking about this and, and rolling out some new initiatives at LSU in recent years. We'd love to get a sense of, of what's going on on campus. And then what advice would you give your peers and fellow institutional leaders about understanding and competing in this marketplace? And, and what do individual institutions need to do coming away from today? Yes, um, really, really good question. Okay, so I think the first piece of, of this is um, is the not sexy part, which mm -hmm. is not about the curriculum or the relevance of the credentials or degrees, though that is important. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but we have got to make it easy for our students to come to us. For, for some reason, we're still sort of stuck in this. We can't, we can't act like the student is a customer space. We shouldn't act like that when they're in the virtual classroom, but we should act like that before and after they're in the <laughs> virtual classroom. You know, I don't know any other industry that makes it so hard for people to come like to take advantage of your services uh, other than traditional institutions, right? Like we make it hard to do transcripts. We make it hard to do transfer credit. And you're looking at the, the folks who are growing in the space are the ones that have figured that out and simplified things. Mm -hmm. So I think like on a practical standpoint, like fix your transfer credit, fix your application, make it fast, staff it, do whatever you need to do, get the right technology, to make it an easy to use experience. Because man, you can go on edX today and start a class today and register for, you know, and it, it has to get that easy because that yep. is part of our competition. Um, the other thing I would say is uh, really approach everything as stackable, right? There should be no end of education, even with the credential. That credential should move towards another credential. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about T-shaped professionals or X-shaped leaders and, all of that stuff, we should be focused on learning for transfer because that's going to be the most important thing is can you take a skill set, transfer it to a new situation, mm. add to your skill set, transfer it to a new situation? Like, how are we applying this? Um, and we can't forget our mission, right? Our mission of education, particularly in publics, you know, looked different 50 years ago. It looks a lot different now, but we haven't made the necessary changes. That mission is still the same. Um, and then in terms of advice for peers and fellow institutional leaders, I would say first and foremost, specifically at publics or at um, nonprofit privates where you have sort of not a great deal of stability and like um, executive leadership that stays for like a decade. Mm -hmm. um, what you need is you need absolute stalwart executive support. It doesn't happen without it. I was very, very fortunate. Um, my former provost, Dr. Stacy Haney, she was just remarkable. She she took the hits that needed mm -hmm. to be taken. You know, she uh, she used the levers uh, as much as possible because she saw the big picture. 
picture, which is you have to invest now. You got to get it straight now because that demographic traditional cliff is coming and it's going to be a double cliff because it's not only a cliff of actual students of the age of 18, but it's also a demographic cliff of students that are prepared for university mm-hmm. or college level work, um, which is also gonna change the landscape of higher ed. And so it, you that executive leadership, if you, if you don't have it, uh, that's a problem. Yeah, no, so helpful, Sasha, when I think about what our partners should be thinking about in this space. I mean, I don't think there's like one thing to go out and do on this, but certainly a lot of kind of macro considerations. And I think the first one really is understanding what's happening here and not putting it mm-hmm. in kind of the side of desk. You know, I read this in Inside Higher Ed and kind of write it off, but starting to think about how it transfers into our, our marketplace more generally and, and what it means from a kind of macro market standpoint. So uh, again, I so appreciate your time, Sasha. It was an absolute joy to have you on Office Hours today. And I think your endless wisdom, hopefully, made all of us a lot smarter uh, at the end of the day. Uh, To our listeners, thank you again for joining us. And and should you have any questions or want to talk more about the topic of alternative providers, micro-credentialing, et cetera, please don't hesitate to reach out to me directly at jnell at eab.com. But other than that, thanks again, everyone. And we'll see you on the next edition of Office Hours at EAB. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please join us next week when our experts look at how law schools fared during the pandemic and discuss some big changes they think are needed in terms of how we educate and license attorneys in this country. Until then, thank you for your time.